you know, when I think about Tom Lusmore's definition of digital, the thing that most sticks out for me in that definition is you are having to think about people's raised expectations because you are not in control of those expectations and those expectations are not being set by you as an organisation, they're being set by what's going on outside. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Emma. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we speak to Laura Dewis, who is Chief Operating Officer at Full Fact, a charity of independent fact checkers and campaigners who find, expose and counter the harm caused by bad information shared by anyone in public debate. It really was a fascinating discussion and one that I think will always be topical as long as social media platforms are out there holding our time and attention. I mean, we live in a world where reputable information sources are thin on the ground and where an organisation like Full Fact has a vital role to play. Um, And talking of social media as a breeding ground of misinformation and groundswells of public opinion, Zoe, you raised the topic of uh, Amber Heard and and Johnny Depp um, and their lawsuit how that's playing out across social media. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know about you, but I can't go on Twitter without seeing Johnny Depp or Amber Heard uh, trending at the moment. And you can watch their testimony live. And it just seems to be all over social media right now. Uh, The reason why I wanted to talk about this today uh, is that it almost feels like there are two things going on at the same time. There's the actual court case And then there's this trial by social media aspect as well, where if you go on to any social media platform now, there are people who are clearly team Amber Heard and supporting her and then people who are team Johnny Depp. And it's interesting how the court case is obviously focused on the facts and the evidence, whereas this wider discussion on social media is seems to be very much about which of these two parts of this celebrity former couple uh, people are supporting. So it does make me think, as someone who used to be a lawyer a very long time ago, how this is really hard for the whole due process um, and the way that is that is is developed. And obviously there's things you could do as a judge in directing your jurors um, not to be involved on social media and only to to look at certain things online but nevertheless when you've got almost like um, a tornado going on outside the courtroom in the form of these very very uh, difficult and often quite um, visceral discussions on social media it does make you think about um, what we need to do and what judges and um, lawyers need to do as well in order to make sure that uh, jurors and judges can make these decisions in unbiased fair ways I think it's very very difficult. Of course it happens at the same time or in parallel to a a similar say similar uh, another big court case in the UK which is the Colleen Rooney Rebecca Vardy court case which again started through social media is being played out on social media and very much the same it usually you know who which side you come down on are you Vardy or are you Rooney? It's interesting as a, as a football fan that I've just kind of tuned out of that one, but it's exactly the same. Every time I go on to, to Twitter, 
there's an enormous amount of discussion and debate and it makes it must make it really really hard if you are involved in either of those cases to really separate yourself from it and not get sucked in definitely and it says something about the nature of public discourse now that it's so hard to have a balanced reasonable discussion about anything it it seems to be very much about picking a side and that should be the last thing you do when you're really thinking through an issue in my view looking at things objectively yeah absolutely and talking about objectively another item you raised was the article you read i think was it was it the sunday times uh, about winston marshall marshall who um not my favourite band in the world, but it was the banjo player for Mumford and Sons um, a few a few years back, and I I had to look it up and, and read it. I hadn't seen any of this, but he got um, cancelled in inverted commas online um, for sharing some views or, or recording some views um, that were not or counter to the the views perhaps of his bandmates. Yeah, absolutely, and it's an interesting article in itself for what happens to someone after they get cancelled once all the social media dies down what are you left with and what happens to your career and as with the previous story about um Johnny Depp and Amber Heard we'll pop the link to this and also that one in the show notes as well so people can catch up with that the times one is behind um a paywall unfortunately although it has been quite extensively covered in other places as well so it's very interesting from the perspective of what happens after someone gets cancelled, um, but also how you really have to have a strong stomach to get involved in the social media debate. Anyone who's followed this story will know that absolutely he did tweet some views which seem to be very different to what the rest of his band um, would have said politically and um, certainly led to him leaving the band as as well. So there were pretty catastrophic consequences for his career. Really interesting reading the article as well about how actually when it came down to it, I'm not sure he necessarily approached this in the way that Piers Morgan would have approached it, as in I am going out there and really taking a stand. It sounds like he actually tweeted uh, the thing that got him cancelled almost in a very off-the-cuff moment and is now living with the, the consequences of that so really really fascinating example really interesting story of of what happens and does does cancel culture even work well yeah it was funny because when you sent this through I was listening to um, Mark Commode and Simon Mayo at the weekend as I would normally do and uh, they were talking about the very fact there's a film uh, a film with um, Mark Wahlberg and um, Mel Gibson plays his dad and they were talking about the very fact that Mel Gibson is still acting in films shows that cancel culture in 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 Hollywood at least is is it's there but people are getting away with it um or people are getting away with something or being forgiven I don't know what it is um but being able to to have a a career beyond um the incidents themselves but you know Mel Gibson's fairly famously documented as as as, as being somebody that that holds um alternative um, views and is still out there making films so yeah I think that cancel culture question of does it exist uh, how how does it represent itself who's doing the cancelling you know who's whiter than than white here um all in a in a in a week where um we're looking at the uh Elon Musk potentially not buying Twitter now because um he's looked into the data and he can't tell 
how many accounts on on Twitter are verified or how how many are not verified. So the whole idea that um, uh, these these channels, these places where we we spend all this time and we hold these views and, and share these opinions um, are are moderated, if you like, by uh, by the the by an extreme uh, set of, of of values from from people that that shouldn't be in shouldn't be in charge. But yeah, the, the long and the short of it, Zoe, to, to sum up, is that I still won't be listening to Mumford and Sons, even if he's not in the band. <laughs> um, fair point. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, now for our conversation with Laura Dewis. We are very excited to welcome Laura Dewis to the podcast today. She is the Chief Operating Officer at Full Fact. Laura oversees the delivery of Full Fact strategy. She previously spent a decade leading digital transformation in government, delivering changes to working practices and merging teams to focus on data publishing. Prior to that, Laura worked in product and editorial roles at the Open University and the BBC, with a focus on open data and online learning. She worked briefly in research and development for McGraw-Hill in New York. Laura has served on advisory groups for the Cabinet Office, the United Nations Statistics Division, UNESCO, the OECD, the UK Regulators Network and Harvard University. Laura, we are delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on Starts at the Top. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'd really like to start with a little bit of a hat tip to Danny Atias because he did a really interesting introduction to himself uh, when he joined your podcast. And so just to add to that little bit long biography, um, if you don't mind, I would like to just say that I am a 43 year old female. I'm able bodied. I'm white, straight. My pronouns are she and here. And I'm Welsh and I went to a comprehensive school and was the first person in my family to go to university. So that's just a bit of personal background about me. Well, that's brilliant, Laura. Thank you. And, and thanks for sharing something of yourself with our listeners. And uh, for anyone that hasn't come across full fact before, can you tell our listeners a bit more about what it is? Yeah, absolutely. We are in brief a fact checking charity. And so our job is to hold politicians and journalists to account for making incorrect claims. So, for example, at the moment, the Prime Minister has made an incorrect claim about employment nine times. um, and We are trying to encourage uh, that claim to be corrected on the record. So we have an enormous amount of campaigning work that we are doing, not just in terms of what's going on in things like the online safety bill, but actually what are the processes and systematic issues, um, particularly in government, that make it difficult for MPs to to correct the claims that they make when they are wrong. Can you tell us a bit more about how Bullfrack does all of that amazing work behind the scenes? Because obviously digital is so fundamental to how you operate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty frightening when you look at the numbers um, that we work with. So I would say around 100,000 claims are made in the UK every day. One of those claims per fact checker can be dealt with. So in total, when you look at like the global number of fact checks that have been published, um, if we look at that um, in terms of 
using claim review, which is a um, way of tagging fact checks. So other uh, uh, search engines can, can figure out which uh, content online has been fact checked. If you look at their numbers, around 100 to 150,000 uh, fact checks have been published globally, right, ever. So when you're looking at that kind of scale, it's, um, it's really important that we're using digital and we're using technologies to be able to tackle uh, the problems that we uh, see out there. So full fact do that in several ways. Um, we have policy and advocacy teams who are very much leading on things like campaigning around the online safety bill. We obviously have our fact checking editorial team. So an amazing group of people who are constantly monitoring what's going on out there and um, checking those claims and providing the information um, that is needed to correct those claims. So the reality of what's going on in different subject areas. And we also have an amazing communications team who are um, working with our technology team often to develop solutions uh, to the problems that we have. So um, there are a couple of really good examples that where we have used digital at scale. I would say during the pandemic, um, our partnership with an organization called Pregnant and Screwed was one of the really interesting ones. So this is where we were seeing um, vaccine hesitancy in people who are pregnant. Um, so the take up of the vaccine uh, was tracking way behind uh, the, the take up in the general population and pregnant and screwed were doing amazing work, but they only had so much capacity to be able to answer all of the questions that they were getting from the people that they were working with. So we partnered up with them and we used WhatsApp to allow people to ask us questions. And we would go out and investigate what was going on in that space and bring back the facts. Um, and that was, you know, so helpful to so many people and a really good example of how we could partner and use um, digital to make sure that we were both listening to people and understanding their concerns, being able to see um, how those concerns were trending. So where the, the kind of biggest worries were for people and how we could then apply our resources to be able to fact check and make sure that good, solid, factual information got out there. Um, and in that team, we had a qualified doctor. So we were very lucky to be able to work with an expert um, to do that work. So, yeah, that's one example, I would say. The, the, the other that we talk about a lot um, is how we use artificial intelligence um, and particularly natural language processing. So as you can imagine, you've got a world of information out there. Most of us every day are completely overwhelmed, right, with information. And so how on earth do you get to figure out which is, you know, where, where misinformation is happening, where disinformation is happening, and what are the most important problems to tackle? Um, so we use technology that we are developing um, ourselves and with a global network of fact checkers around the world um, to help fact checkers do their job. So the idea is not to use artificial, artificial intelligence to replace fact checkers, but to make sure that the process of fact checking is as good as it possibly can be. Um, there are probably four ways in which the technology can really help us. So one thing that technology does really well is find other similar things. So if a claim has been made that's incorrect and we've gone and corrected it, then it can go and find out where that claim has been um, used again and again and again. So while the source of that incorrect claim might have corrected it, obviously that information might have gone further and, in, and be published in multiple places. So can we use technology to identify all of those places that that incorrect information has gone so that we can try to, to do something about it? 
Um, the second is just identifying the right things to fact check, right? Because there's so much out there. So how can we kind of use the technology to scan what's out there um, using particular kind of rules that we give it for what we're interested in and make sure that it brings back stuff that we can then um, look at quite quickly. Um, and a big part of it is also like speeding up that process. So automating the way that we can access official sources of information. So one example of that would be um, ONS statistics um, that I used to be responsible for publishing. So how do we actually bring back those statistics in a way that's really useful for our teams to be able to quickly um, look at them and reference them in any uh, fact check that they might be doing? Um, and the final thing I think, but really, really critically important, is we need to make every fact check work as hard as possible. And that means not just publishing it on our website, but thinking about where people access information and making sure that we correct it at the point at which they're accessing that information. So, yes, we have a fantastic uh, number of supporters and they will be actively coming to our website and they know us as uh, know a place to go. But we're not a destination for millions of people um, who are much more likely to be looking for information via a search engine. And so it's much more useful for us to be able to say this particular piece of information has been fact checked at the point in which they're searching for that information. And so hundreds of millions of people see our fact checks on other platforms. And that's a really critical piece of how we use technology. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that insight into how you work, because it's such an incredibly difficult, incredibly complex area, isn't it? And it's fascinating to hear how you're using technology, especially AI, to, to, to deal with all of this. I mean, it really is one of the, the great challenges of our times, isn't it? How we deal with misinformation and all the other attendant issues. Do you think that we as a society have kind of fully woken up to some of the implications of that because it strikes me as it's 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 a bit like fighting fighting a war isn't it in many ways mm, absolutely and I would say uh, like the answer to lots of questions a little bit yes and a little bit no you know we have the online safety bill at the moment being debated and you know we don't think there's enough that's being said about misinformation and disinformation and the harms that that can do and how we need to address that as a society. So we are very much campaigning um, around that at the moment. Um, so if you go to our website, for example, you will see that we are running a campaign about honesty in politics. We have had 23,000 people sign a petition in the last couple of weeks saying that they want to make sure that the systems um, in uh, Parliament allow for MPs to correct the record. That's not actually the case um, in all cases. And so really kind of raising awareness about the um, the, the issue here is, is really critical. Um, and if society understood this and there was enough understanding, we wouldn't have to be in this space and doing, doing this work. So, so no, I don't think there's enough understanding of that. Having said that, the fact that we have an online safety bill and it's being debated, right, is raising awareness of this. And certainly there are lots and lots of great organisations campaigning in this space. I was, I was just going to sort of riff off the, the idea that um, people are going to sort of different destinations to find information and it starts usually with a Google search. And we, as a society, I think, have got quite used to trusting what we see on these these platforms. So how are you working with the likes of Google, Twitter and some of the social platforms to make sure that 
you're you're seen and and, and fact checks are seen by everyone because as i said you know that page one of google taking it as scripture and then moving on is 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 kind of part of our society i think yeah Absolutely. So there is a really amazing uh, project that lots of different organisations have contributed to around something called claim review. So that is a way that fact checkers internationally can tag their fact checks. And that just means that the search engines are then able to automate the bringing back of that fact check in association with the original article. And so then when you go to the search results, it will display that and say this is false or this is true or something of that nature, depending on how it's been categorized. So I think that's a really, really important project that um, is supported, as I said, internationally. The other thing that we do is that we work um, with Facebook. So we look at a feed of things that have been reported to us from Facebook's own mechanisms for moderating content. And we are actively engaged in looking at that content and making decisions about whether um, it is something that, you know, is in the public interest for us to do a fact check about. So that is part of our editorial process. Just thinking, Zoe, you probably saw it too, but all those sort of parents WhatsApp groups throughout lockdown where somebody would say, you know, somebody's got COVID within the school and then it would suddenly flood across and everyone would be jumping on the bandwagon and talking about, you know, vaccinations and things like that without doing the fact check. Some, so many of the, so, so much of the discourse amongst humans is, is sort of done in that way where it's the passing on of information. It has always been that, that, that way. Um, making it really really easy for people to just say well hold on let's go and check the facts and come back to the discussion i'm fully armed with with a better answer because it, it, it can just explode i agree and um yeah some of the parents whatsapp groups i'm in are, are absolutely the places where those things happen i suppose that must be one of the the hard parts of what you you do at full fat where you have those kind of hidden pockets of uh, places where you, you you've got misinformation spreading but it must be really hard to see because it's of closed groups and those sorts of forums yeah absolutely and so some of the work that we are looking at and it's very early days at the moment but is how do we work with very specific communities around this communities that we know are being affected um, but we might not always uh, know exactly how until we're working much more closely with them so that for us is about uh, partnerships with other organizations like we did with pregnant and screwed um, or it's you know um, just working with those communities directly and really understanding um, exactly how they might be being targeted and sometimes we also have our supporters in particular and this is partly about the importance of raising awareness about the charity itself is that our supporters when they know we exist and what we do and they understand that they contact us directly and they share things that otherwise we wouldn't see so that might be emails that they're receiving from people that are in positions of power who are spreading misinformation through uh, an email channel and when you think about the impact of that um, in a situation such as an election you know that that can fundamentally impact on democracy in, in the UK. So, yeah, having uh, increased awareness of our charity and what we are doing and how we can help um, helps us to see some of that information flow that we might not otherwise. Well, having worked in big corporate organisations, a lot of what you hear from leaders within those organisations is sort of taken as verbatim and fact without having the ability to always go back and, and, and check those facts. And we've seen the likes of, um, uh, you know, going back to big tech, Google and other organisations like that, 
where internally um, you'll suddenly start to see um, whistleblowers and people coming in saying, well, this is this is how information gets spread or this is how things are shared within. It might be a step too far, but how easy is it to, to start to influence the, the flow of information and misinformation within organisations, not just what we see out in the public arena? Yeah, incredibly challenging. And I guess that's why, you know, those mechanisms are there, right, for for whistleblowers. Um, it's it's not really an area that we are focused on um, particularly, but uh, yeah, I would recognise the challenge. I think it's such brave and important and vital work that Full Facts are doing. And it reminds me of when one of um, my children said, so my son, when he was about six, he had a piece of homework where he had to go on uh, the internet and find out facts about a certain topic. And then I remember him showing me the homework afterwards and we talked about how actually we need to check that these things are are right and they're true because he'd found some quite outlandish things. Um, and there's something about how humans just have passively accept information, don't we, from these, these really sort of trusted sources. And I guess this happens offline as well, doesn't it? I mean, my mum will believe anything that she hears on an LBC phone-in, bless her. Yeah, absolutely. And in my previous work, I worked for the pensions regulator. And, you know, you had a lot of people who were, um, you know, having scammers contact them around their pensions. They were often elderly and vulnerable and um, perhaps not so kind of uh, much in the digital world. So, you know, this is often happening, as we've just discussed you know, on the telephone or via letter or even by people knocking on their doors. So that whole world of, you know, uh, trying to avoid the harms that happen to people because of misinformation coming in all sorts of directions is, is so critical for us to be thinking about systematically. You know, full fat can only do so much um, and has a very particular focus. But yeah. Absolutely. Um, so to change tack a bit, when we spoke uh, first a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about design. And this has obviously been an ongoing thread through your career and your, your work at the BBC. Uh, and I think it's a subject that kind of gets slightly inconsistent airtime in the, the charity sector and perhaps beyond as well. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your, your passion for design? Mm, absolutely. Um... I think I've worked in too many organisations where design is just thought of as, uh, you know, how do you make something a particular colour? And it's always at the end of a process. And so, you know, a designer will be asked, um, here's some information. Can you just stick it online and can you make sure it looks good? And design is so much more than that. And um, having organisations who don't understand that get to a point where they understand just how critical design is, is just something that I'm so passionate about. Um, designers, of course, do make things look beautiful, but they also make them useful. Um, but I would say even more important than making them useful, they help us make the decisions about whether we should be making something at all. And I think that's what's so critical about design is if you have designers uh, working with you right from the very beginning of a process, they will help you address your assumptions. They will help you kind of cut through any biases that you might have or that curse of knowledge that we all have, you know, that we built up experience and information and views and opinions over time, which may not hold true when you look at the problem from a different perspective. So designers are very good at helping 
everybody in a, in a project to see things from a different perspective and to prototype and test things and get views from the actual people who might be using whatever it is that you're building um, in order to really test whether we need this thing at all. And so I think that's really critical. And I would give a shout out to Jodie Bennett, who's an amazing designer working at the pensions regulator, who did a fantastic job of collaboratively working with the organisation and understanding how the organisation worked so that she could embed design processes into how everybody worked rather than seeing design as a silo or design at the end of a process. And in that way, she really got buy-in from multiple people across the organisation to that design process being embedded in how they delivered product. And I thought that was an excellent piece of work. Um, and it took the organisation right from that kind of space of, we need an app, but we don't know why we need it, to, ah, OK, we need to engage in research uh, before we even start to do anything, um, before we even think about colours. Like, that's not what design is all about. Um, so I think that, you know, for me, creativity is about being able to select the best idea from a range of what might be fantastic ideas but really getting to the idea that is going to be the one that makes the difference for people um, is, is the benefit of having designers in an organization. Totally I completely agree with that I think there's something about how designers often get um, pigeonholed don't they as just dealing with design well obviously as you say that's important in itself whereas I think all the the really good designers that I've worked with and indeed the amazing people that you've mentioned there too it's about understanding business problems isn't it yeah absolutely so it's about saying there is a phase here before we even kind of um, come up with a strategy of figuring out what the problem is, defining the problem really well, um, and listening to people outside our organizations who will be ultimately the end users of anything that we create. Um, too often, I think we, uh, we learn so much in an organization that we think of ourselves as the experts in a domain subject, and we forget that, you know, if you're coming um, at what the organization delivers from outside, you're going to have a completely different um, set of knowledge and skills and understanding and assumptions about that organization and what it's there to do. And so I think just breaking that down and actually engaging people um, who are going to be using whatever services that you might be designing is, is really critical. And I think, um, you know, there is no more important time to do that when the people that you are serving are very very different to you you know and remembering that you are not the user a few weeks ago we talked about um designing for disability and i know that's a subject you feel really passionate about so can you can you give people perhaps a bit of advice about how they should consider that yeah absolutely i think you know when i um did uh masters in electronic publishing a long time ago and it's quite a quaint name for a, a, a master's course now but that that really started to teach me about um all the benefits and the opportunities that we can use the web for and i was very very committed to the idea of my career about being about equalizing access to information online for everybody and that included people with disabilities. And in fact, I saw some of the 
the greatest opportunities for people with disabilities because the use of the internet opened up so much more access to information, tools, technologies that meant that people with disabilities were able to access things more quickly or even at all, right? So for me, that was really important. I was incredibly lucky to then get a job on BBC Ouch, which at the time was, um, I would say, kind of like a lifestyle magazine format online for people with disabilities, produced uh, by people with disabilities. And it's still um, edited, it's a podcast now, it's still edited by the amazing Damon Rose, who um, I think is, is really interesting and says something about the time that when he was employed by the BBC, the Sun run a front page about the BBC hiring a blind TV director, right? So that's that's kind of interesting in itself, right? And we've come, I hope, a long way um, since those days, but um, it kind of says a lot about, yeah, how disability was seen, right, at that time. Um, Ouch do this brilliant editorial, so they're quite punchy. So if you look at their recent podcasts, they are about things like um, how um, you might test inaccessible sex toys. Uh, they've also recently met uh, the first disabled crew to fly in zero gravity. So it's really, really interesting content that they are producing. And through working on that um, website, I got to meet lots of colleagues who had disabilities. And it really showed me and taught me about the differences between different disabilities and the nuances of design for people with different disabilities. So it kind of feels obvious to me now, but back then it was really eye-opening about if you design for one particular disability, you can really make things difficult for somebody with a different disability. So how do we look at this and really understand it? And it's complicated and it's hard, but it's really important. And how to test. For, with people with disabilities because I was really lucky that I was working in an enormous organization at the time. So there was a lot of staff around that I could kind of test with and see um, how things worked or didn't work for them. So that was incredibly important. I then went from that job into other organizations where I would be sat around the table with people who would say, well, I know that legally we need to design for people with disabilities but actually maybe we just take the fine, you know, because it's really difficult. And actually how many people really have a disability who's who are using our website? And so part of my role then was about trying to shift people's points of view about that. Um, and part of that is just data, you know, just how many people have a disability. Um, part of it is kind of trying to help people empathize and so, you know, pointing out that any of us could be disabled at any point in our lives and we could also be temporarily disabled. So I might wake up tomorrow and have an eye infection and not be able to see as well um, as I can today. And so, you know, what could I do to make sure that I could still continue to work in that situation? Um, so some of it was about building empathy and understanding and, and having people think about their own situations and how it might might impact them. Um, and also just getting across the point that often when we design for people with disabilities, we're making things better for everybody. And so, again, kind of appealing, I suppose, to people's selfish side to a degree, um, but we are all selfish human beings. And I think, you know, 
using examples like um, if you have a ramp up into a building that's been put there for wheelchair users, how often do you use that simply because you might be, I don't know, manoeuvring a bike or you might be wearing high heels and it's easier than worrying about tripping up the stairs. So all of these things that we design for, when we make them really easy um, to use, we can make them easy to use for everybody and everyone benefits. I did some work with um, RNIB uh last year and one of the things i really liked about their content and what they put out is that they try and help all readers of their content to um step into a blind person a blind or partially sighted person's shoes every once in a while and i really like the stuff they do um about communicating through social media for example and and you know how the use of emojis and how the use of uh, untagged images and things like that can really impact into a, a user's life. And I've noticed a bit of a shift actually in many, many people starting to use and the visibility of uh, things like alt tags and images on, on social media, particularly Twitter, um, not necessarily as a result of it, but I just really admired what they did. Um, the other thing that we were discussing before we came on was how to achieve um, digital at scale. Now, you've worked within digital change at scale. You've worked in uh, in many different organisations, and I imagine like most of us in, in digital teams, small teams to um, impact a, a big issue. Um, full fact, have 35 people and you're trying to take on the world. So how can leaders play a, a more active role in helping their digital teams to achieve that, that greater impact, do you think? Yeah. I, and I think, you know, achieving impact is is always more than digital. So it's about recognising where digital kind of interfaces with, with other activities that are going on. So I would say at full fact, it's a small team, but it's a team that pull together and that work across disciplines. And so, for example, with the Honesty and Politics campaign, that is as very much as much as what we're doing in terms of meeting people, advocating, you know, having conversations in, in real life, as much as it is about how we're using digital to, say, build the petition and make sure that we have uh, the ability for people to share their um, views and their information with us in a way that we can then use um, in our campaigning. So I think there's a... Uh, yeah, a variety of ways that, that you can, can do this at scale. I would say it's very different, and I'm only four months into working in the charity sector and at full fact, but it's very different working in a small organisation to some of the larger organisations that I've worked in. And so in some of my previous work, when we're talking about digital at scale, part of that is really about how do you shift the organisation, right, from being potentially an organisation that is very IT focused to one that truly understands what digital means. And if you're going to do anything at scale, um, even, you know, even with all of the resources that large organisations have, it's very difficult to do that unless you have that understanding right at the heart of the organisation, certainly supported by the senior team, but understood throughout. And I think that that's been a real challenge at times um, in the organisations I've, I've worked in to be able to make that shift from understanding deeply what IT is to understanding what digital is and understanding how those two disciplines work together effectively. Yeah, just thinking about some of the smaller conversations I've had about bringing those teams together, bringing those disciplines together and seeing the interactions at, at the table is half of the joy and I think our jobs. So that's what I enjoy the most is when you bring those people together and often in situations where they're 
not even talking to each other for the first time, but maybe meeting each other for the first time, or at least being asked, you know, how do you see this? And I think that's that's where some of the magic can happen. Yeah, that's exactly the experience I had in an organisation where I went in as the kind of uh, most senior person in digital and I immediately want to meet my technology colleagues and in my handover note I'm thinking where where are the contacts who 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 is it that I'm supposed to be speaking to and they weren't in my handover note so when I mm. kind of dug them out I said can we have a coffee I said oh I've just taken on the role from the predecessor um, and they were like who is that we've never met <laughs> who was the predecessor yeah yeah and 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 yet I had come from an organisation actually where very um, luckily I had colleagues in IT, data, enterprise architecture and, my, and myself who really understood each other's disciplines enough to be able to work really effectively together. So I've seen teams where it works beautifully well and then organisations where it's like this is completely new and uh, why would I speak to you and what are you here to do? Um, mm. And you really have to start kind of from scratch. Um, and I think that often digital can be seen as, um, you know, the cowboys of the organisation. I think, you know, it's, it's this sense of, oh, they have this thing called agile and it just means that they rush everything and do things <laughs> quickly and they never write anything down. And, you know, because they just hate bureaucracy and, you know, like digital can be seen a bit like designers can have this kind of brand image problem of being seen as fluffy and all about kind of just, you know, making things pink. That does the digital have this kind of yeah reputation of being cowboys and not really you know doing anything properly and then IT can get this kind of brand image problem of being you know laggards or you know a bit computer says no mm. and actually the reality is never that it's just that these perceptions kind of develop because people aren't talking to each other and not understanding each other's disciplines and so inevitably distrust, you know, is bred in, in an organisation, particularly with something like digital, which still feels quite new, you know, to lots of organisations. Um, the definition of digital is not well understood. And so it does feel like a bit of a mystery or, you know, something that that needs to be rejected sometimes from, from the, the organisation. And I just think that there are very... Um, very clear differences between what a technology department was set up to do and what a digital kind of era needs. And so actually understanding that and having that conversation really openly in organisations is really important because IT departments do an enormously important job, but their incentives for what they do are very, very different. So if you think about an IT department, they are focused on a controlled environment. They want to keep change requests to a minimum because, you know, if you make a change to technology in an organization, there is a process change cost. There is a cost to people's learning curve and therefore productivity. Um, and they need to keep costs to a minimum and manage that. And they are building things for a group of people who are known to them, who are working on a very fixed technology stack and everything's kind of within their control to a degree. Um, and then you have digital where you're designing stuff for people you've probably never met. You might know a little bit about them, but, you know, probably even less now than you used to be able to know through analytics. Uh, they are on multiple browsers and devices. And what is the norm for them is not set by an organization. It's set by 
the world and innovators in the world who are doing new things and setting new precedents. So, you know, when I think about Tom Lusmore's definition of digital, the thing that most sticks out for me in that definition is you are having to think about people's raised expectations because you are not in control of those expectations and those expectations are not being set by you as an organization. They're being set by what's going on outside. Um, and so being able to talk to IT colleagues and also procurement colleagues who are potentially bringing in, you know, technology suppliers into the organization about what does it mean to be a digital organization and how does that change um, how you see the IT function and how you see the digital function and how you bring in IT suppliers and work with them. All of that needs to be openly discussed. Otherwise, you are just going to be banging your head against a brick wall for a long, long, long time. Yeah, there's my, my sort of experience that there's with IT teams in particular, there's always a low expectation across the organisation of what they do. And I think what I was really interested in in the relationship I built up uh, um, in my last um, role was the, the, the relationship between me and, and, and the CIO, I think, was one of um, I really respected the way that he set up everything to protect the business. It was all about protection. It was all about being um, in control and I guess the way that we helped each other was I helped him to push the to sort of think about the boundaries of how far can we push that you know how far can we push that safety what can we what what can we do to, to do that and how can we achieve it and when they make those first steps into um, for, for me it was um, uh, implementing a system which was actually the first cloud-based system within that organization the releasing of data beyond the four walls of the organization, beyond the firewall, was the bit that unlocked all of that for, for, for that CIO. And since that, that point, um, I think the role of the IT team within that organization has just grown and grown and grown because they've let go of a bit of control, probably instigated by somebody that's just come in and said, well, what, how, how can we push this barrier just that little bit? Yeah. That sounds fantastic. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall as you were having those conversations. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, I think that's the, the crux of it, I think, the for, for us as, as consultants going into organisations. But I think that the really, the, the thing that I think you've, you've sort of brought across is that um, that excitement, the excitement of being at that table, the excitement that those teams are probably, you know, IT teams don't want to be known as the sort of the boring laggards within organisations. They have ambitions. They want to do things as well. And the bit that I love the most about the role that I do is just plugging in and just seeing the little uh, diodes of excitement going off in people's faces where you go, I can actually do this. Yeah, you can. And it just takes a, a little bit of confidence and a little bit of a step outside of the comfort zone to do it. But that's the, the favourite bit is bringing those people to the, 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 the table because those conversations just aren't happening all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in that, you know, there can be a sense sometimes in the organisation that the investment is all going into digital and the people who've worked in IT have often seen like the opportunity of digital and wanted to kind of see the organisation progress, but they're not getting any of those resources. And so it's also about saying, well, how do we actually work together for the good of the organisation to make sure we've got the right resource in the right place and that we understand who's got the right skills to do the various things that we need to do as an organisation? I think that's a nice note to, to finish on. So thank you very much for, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Laura. That was fantastic. So thank you very much to Laura for joining us on Starts at the Top. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If there's anything that you want to share or respond to, please do let us know. 
as usual, please do send us your feedback. Uh, if you use a podcast app where you can rate and review, that would be wonderful. It does help people find Starts at the Top. You can also share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at Starts at the Top 1. And you can email us at Starts at the Top podcast at gmail.com. We'll be back with another episode next week. Um, so we'll see you then. See you then.